0: When Trump tweeted about Mike Pence not being a patriot who's going to fight for democracy, half an hour after that, you have a woman hanging from a window that's been smashed in beside the inauguration entrance shouting on a bullhorn, we need patriots who are going to fight for democracy. That's how quickly this call and response that was happening.
1: Welcome to On Assignment from Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright, the Executive Director of the Professional Prizes Department at Columbia. I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, DuPont Awards Director Lisa R. Cohen. Hello, Lisa.
2: Hi, Abby. So it's the first week of October, and we're still on the edges of our seats. As we patiently await the last round of the Congressional Committee hearings on the Capitol riots, that took place almost two years ago now. It's hard to believe. Yeah, it's incredible. So the hearing was postponed last week, um, but it's up and coming. And since this two-year-old story is still being talked about so much, while we wait for that final hearing, we thought it would be a prime time to focus on January sixth for this month's podcast.
1: We gave a DuPont Award earlier this year to The New York Times for their deep dive into the turbulent events of
2: January 6th. This episode features Maliki Brown, who is the visual investigations lead at The New York Times, and he's talking about this DuPont Award-winning documentary, which was called Day of Rage, How Trump Supporters Took the U.S. Capitol. It's a work that takes viewers through a minute-by-minute rundown and really wraps up who, what, when, where, and why of this mob that stormed the Capitol. The New York Times team used sound and video from a
1: lot of different sources, police radio dispatches, body cams, videos that insurrectionists posted themselves on social media, and of course, journalists'
2: first-hand footage. January 6th has remained one of the biggest news stories, but what made the Times' coverage different and what elevated it to meet DuPont standards was their use of data and graphics, which gives the audience unique insight and a vantage point into how the riders marched to the Capitol, managed to get inside, and do the damage they did.
1: Right, and how no one stopped them on the way. It's pretty remarkable to watch.
2: And by the time the documentary ends, you almost feel like you were there. I'm, that's the way I felt, on the ground.
1: Absolutely. It's a terrifying thought, but that's so true. So, as you know, the way that Malachi and his team went about reporting this story were incredibly complex. So we're gonna let him explain it to the audience in this edited version of a virtual conversation that we had with
2: him. And when this episode starts, he's just learned that he's won a DuPont. Congratulations.
0: I mean, it, it's, it It really is credit to, to the team. They spent countless hours poring over this um, material on the verge of being traumatized by it, you know, because it, it is really shocking stuff when you see it um, and that it's happening in, you know, almost on your doorstep. It was a, a real newsroom effort driven by the, the editors in particular, like Dimitri and Natalie, who watched over hundreds of hours of, of material to... Tell the story in the best possible way. I mean, it, it's it's strange. You couldn't have directed something like this if you were there in person.
2: You know, the opening scene of this, the scene on the bus, was just like you could not make that up. They're saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and they're heading off on like a like almost like a school trip to Washington. One nation under God, indivisible. With liberty and justice. it was a brilliant way to start the piece it just brought you inside and it made me wonder where that came from and how you got it
0: you know typically we're we're producing news videos that you know need to be a certain length for digital platforms and digital audiences but this was just so expansive and to tell the story in its totality we knew it needed a different treatment and a different length but it was really Natalie Renault who was editing the uh, start of the whole episode, who took a more cinematic approach to it and wanted to slowly bring the viewer in, settle them into, you know, the ordinary Trump supporters, many of whom weren't caught up in the violence, but also just th- this idea of patriotism that suffuses the whole story and the whole day. Um, which means different things to different people, as, as we know, but started with this, this, this sort of calmness that built into the sort of the, the anger and the vitriol that led people there, but then the chaos that, that resulted from all of that. They came from all 50 states out of some sense of patriotic duty. It's so much more than just rallying for President Trump. It's really rallying for our way of life, the American dream against fake news. To protest an election they believed had been stolen. The power of the footage that was captured that day is that you're as you say, you're in the bus with them. You you're almost alongside. You're carried along on the journey, and right through the day, through the halls of of Congress, you're hearing and you're feeling what people believe and why they're there and what their motivations are. You know, like right throughout the piece,
1: I'd be curious to know how you approached it in a journalistic, objective way because it is an explosive event in our country's history and. I notice that you occasionally dip in for context at pivotal moments to say, you know, these people thought this as they were doing this to help a regular viewer understand what they're seeing. How do you approach this kind of a massive volatile event? How, how can you be objective about this event as you are piecing it together?
0: You know, the first reporting task is for us to most accurately lay out what happened step by step by step. From the outset, we knew that hearing the sound bites and the, you know, what people were saying in their own words, unfiltered, was also going to be a really big part of this because it gives you a window into their mentality. As you watch more and more and more of the footage, patterns emerge. You hear the echoes of the disinformation campaign that was fed to people. This election was a fraud. The baseless claims. President Trump won this election. They were flipping votes. Steal the election in Philadelphia. Election the amping up on the night before the was really, really very strongly felt by a lot of people. We bleed freedom. So that it was sort of a, a, a patriotic duty. And we will sacrifice for freedom. To, um, to stop Congress from illegally calling an election. There were many hundreds, if not thousands of people there who fervently believed that many hundreds of people who came prepared for violence i think there was a sort of a universal feeling that we need to call out the reasons why people said that they were there and felt they were justified in in acting violently but also then call out the people in power who who are still downplaying and excusing that event trying to whitewash it as uh, some sort of democratic expression of discontent Mm
2: The DOJ is harassing peaceful patriots across
0: the country. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. So, we're careful not to verge into sort of opinion territory, if you like, you know, what to, to call it out for what you were seeing with your own eyes.
2: This is one of those rare stories where you were actually probably, I assume, a, a, a bit of a witness to it yourself, right? And everyone in the newsroom, Abby and I were not together, but we were texting each other back and forth, watching it on TV. What, tell me about what was happening with your team, with you on that day. Did you watch it in real time? Are you leaping to action? What's happening?
0: We were watching it with uh, some astonishment and uh, you know, disbelief. We understood the magnitude of the event fairly early on and the need to start collecting evidence and organizing it. And that's how we think of it uh, as evidence, not just sort of cover or B-roll or something like that. Our reporters were in touch with people who filmed the twelve moment at 12.53 when the first violence breaks out over Twitter, DMing them later on saying, could you send us the original file And they send it? And that gives us a timestamp that we can report for the first time. So this is where we're kicking into gear, trying to, trying to collect specifics and details and data um, including tweets from reporters inside in the capital, so that we can begin to sketch it out, how the police lines folded so quickly, who was in the crowd. Uh, I remember there was a spreadsheet whipped up immediately to identify protagonists. And then it took six months of reporting afterwards to, produ- to produce the piece. So it begins with collecting and responding to the news and then sort of taking more time to sit with the evidence and, and sift through it and report it out a little bit more. Some of our team got access to the internal recordings of the Metro Police as well. And Haley Willis, who uh, led a lot of the reporting for the documentary, she also collected radio recordings from open megahertz. And between the two, she had a five hour window of um, of Metro Police recordings. And so you, you could see how the police were responding with what they were up against, you know, and how they were trying to communicate with the Capitol Police, who at times seemed to be awol Capital police had been ordered to withhold some of their stronger weapons, but as soon as Robert Glover, a metro police inspector, arrives, he calls for his munitions team to help.
1: Roger 50, give me a DSO team. DSO team. We cannot hold this
0: from more munitions
1: or more more power.
0: <laughs> But Capital don't respond. He asks four times.
1: I need to know from Capital.
0: Now we're we to take that challenge. Boss! Then the police lose the line.
2: There's a pit we We've lost the line. We lost the line. Oh, and
0: you back. There's all of this sort of detail that you just start of begin to um, weave together. And of course, then the challenge becomes, well, how do you tell this without it being absolutely chaotic and looking left, right and center? You had so many videos of the same moment and we had sort of the, the spine of, of the day through the live streams and there were multiple live streams, photographs, you know, so many different data points. Um, and so that was, the, that was the, the, the sort of the producing and editing and, and storytelling challenge of, uh, of the piece.
1: Right. Because you can't include everything. How many hours, I mean, if you had to put a number on it in terms of the amount of material you guys had, how many gigabytes, how many hours, like how much stuff was there from that, this most documented event?
0: Thousands and thousands of videos and many hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours of of footage. I mean, I think we've got terabytes of parlor data and we took a subset of it and hosted that internally and worked with our data engineers to automatically transcribe it, but also extract the coordinates. But I, I'd have to, I have to have a look at everything that we have. But I think over 500 independent individual pieces of content were used in the making of it, but many, many multiples of that in analyzing it.
2: Just to go back a little bit to collecting all this footage, the Washington Post won a duPont last year for their coverage of the Lafayette Square. And when we talked about it then, they talked a lot about like corroborating all of this by working with their sources, by working with the people who were sending the footage and or collecting. So are you doing that with these rioters? Or are you in touch with these people? Are you asking them to help you put this piece together? How did that work?
0: Yeah. In the early days of it, yes, because we wanted metadata and we wanted original video files and we wanted to hear from some of them, what they were seeing and and where they were going. But by and large, no. Um, A lot of the people who uploaded footage later deleted footage because they realized that it would implicate them. And we took a decision fairly early on not to have characters in it. Our very first cut of this was really just a rough cut of what we had, of, the, of our chronology, without any narration, without anything as a sort of a proof of concept. And we could see the outlines of a strong story that would show the Capitol right in a different way. The scene is being filmed from countless angles, allowing us to piece together, moment by moment, what comes next. Proud boy Dominic Pozzola uses a police shield he stole to bash in a window. and at 2.13 p.m., the Capitol is breached. So we didn't really work with the rioters who were, who were participants in it.
2: You didn't need them at all for any of the verification process?
0: No. There was so much footage that we were able to cross-corroborate it. I mean, it's, it's never one piece of video. You had so many videos of the same moment, and we had sort of the the spine of, of the day through the live streams and there were multiple live streams photographs you know so many different data points we didn't really need to speak to anybody to confirm what had happened minute by minute you know and and, and reconstruct it we were talking to congress people to people involved in the invest congressional investigations to Pelosi staffers to uh, Jim McGovern I mean we did a lot of Additional reporting to make sure that we were on firm ground in characterizing what was happening and what was known, for instance, inside the house about what was happening outside of the house and, you know, talk to Capitol Police, Luke Broadwater and other reporters in DC, you know, they got eyes on internal reports that were happening. So all of that fed into our reporting.
1: Well, one of our jurors remarked that when he watched your report, which came out six months later after the event, he learned so much, even as a professional journalist and news junkie, as someone who saw all this material. I mean, you watched it happen the day that it happened, and then you went through all the material. Are there things that stand out to you that you learned?
0: I think what stood out to me early on and stays with me now is the effect of Propaganda—it—it really is a virus that that invades people's minds, Um, and you heard that so clearly in what people were saying that day. I mean, the chants chants? and the reasons that people were there almost became sort of cliches, you know, because they they were chanted so so often this event was really a sort of a a template for modern political violence. And, And that's something that also stood out. The feedback loop of information, of justification. When Trump tweeted about Mike Pence not being a patriot who was going to fight for democracy, half an hour after that, you have a woman hanging from a window that's been smashed in beside the inauguration entrance, shouting on a bullhorn, we need patriots who are going to fight for democracy, stand up for democracy to get in here now. That's how quickly this call and response that was happening. And that was striking. In terms of the process of reporting it, like we've never faced such a volume of, um, of video. We have taken lessons about how we improve our own workflows um, in trying to automate a lot of the manual tasks that we do when you're faced with um, a big trove of, of evidence like that but also there, there are new tools that are going to help people like us process large volumes of data in the future. Artificial intelligence that won't do right, facial recognition in the sense that it invades somebody's privacy, but can do it on objects and faces within, say, an eight-hour live stream that will show you if there's a person of interest, You know, where do they pop up again, time and again, in, in a large trove of, of data?
2: So we... Uh, asked this question often, and it's a little bit of a big think question, but um, why is the work that you are doing so important?
0: The mission of the Times is to find truth and to hold power to account and to explain an increasingly complex world to our viewers. And I think in a story like this, we hit on the three of them. We felt that you, you really needed to see and feel this story to fully understand it. And that's what we sort of set out to do with just to capture the climate that led to January 6th and the consequences of that political rhetoric and the baseless claim of stolen election. And again, there was so much that went on on that particular day, it was impossible for any one report to capture it. And we really wanted to show the totality of what had happened. And we felt that that was sort of core to to the mission of the Times and, and our work.
2: Well, thank you very much for talking to us. This is really fascinating. And uh, again, congratulations on on all of the honors.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Malachi Brown, for that interview. I mean, it is kind of amazing that we're still (laughs) analyzing what happened and we may be for years to come. It is kind of amazing that we're still (laughs) analyzing what happened and we may be for years to come.
2: There's just so much to analyze.
1: It is really a marvel, the sheer amount of material that the Times team had their hands on and what they managed to do with all of
2: it. It's so hard to imagine a journalist you 10, 20 years ago without everything Maliki and his team had access to being able to produce a story on an event this complex. It really is. We should really just give a shout-out as well to uh, David Bhatti, who is the co-director of this work and who is a J-School grad. Shout-out to David. Well, that's all we have for you today. This episode of On Assignment was produced by Emily Russell and audio engineered by Carlos Del Rosario. Until next time.